Welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. This is me, William Porteous, your host. As always, you can find me on Twitter. We're now on Instagram. I've just hooked it up. Why not? The Limehouse podcast on Instagram and at Limehouse pod on Twitter. So this week, it's a great one for me. This is one of the reasons I set up this podcast, as you well know, was to talk to politicians and try and get some answers. And it's slowly evolved. And I think I've taken some of you by surprise and some of you with me when I've taken a slightly different turn. And this conversation is one of the exact reasons I have done. Paul Salopak is one of the most incredible men. Okay, so last week I spoke to the wonderful Steve Almond. And I said to Steve, I've got Paul on the show. He said, Jesus, this, that's like one of the loveliest men I've ever met. He's one of my absolute heroes. You know, so that coming from Steve Almond is, is quite something. So what blew my mind when I started hearing about Paul about six or seven months ago was how I hadn't have heard about him. That's what blew my mind. Paul is 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 undertaking one of the most incredible, I suppose in a way, anthropological kind of explorations. Except it's not an exploration because it's following in the footsteps of our ancestors. So Paul is walking from Eden, i.e. where we were, where we came from as a human species, where we sat, set out in Ethiopia. He, he is walking thousands and thousands of miles where we emigrated out from there into where we are now, raping the country, raping our country, destroying the planet, but essentially where we all set out from. And it's a wonderful project. He's, I think, I think what I would would call it. It's almost like a slow meditation on the human species. He's a journalist. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist that has done incredible work, embedding himself uh, in with groups of people. He's been a he's been a fisherman. He's explored the carnage that has been wrought on livestock on fishing livestock around the world and he's and that has has now for the past six or seven years turned his attention elsewhere and it's it's really something to to have this guy on the show i mean frankly after this conversation it was like sunday morning because he was in he's in burma at the moment because of the lockdown he's he's been there for a good three or four months now so our time difference was all over the place but Sunday morning for the rest of Sunday and for a good three or four days afterwards I was like I've just spoken to really someone quite unique really genuinely unique and I think you'll get that as well because I I, I really implore you to to after this conversation hell now whatever google him Paul Salopek and his out of Eden walk and you'll get a pretty damn good idea of what he's doing. I, I don't, I think it would be worth your while pausing, reading just for like three or four minutes about his background. We do discuss it here, but it would help you a little more. Because I want you to go into this having a little bit more of an understanding of who he is, because it's an epic chap. And he's an epic chap as well. 
Oh, I just did that. I can't believe it. But anyway, look, this this is wonderful for me. It's beautiful. So yeah, the other thing you will have to be patient with is the line. It is good, bearing in mind we're about seven or 8,000 miles apart, whatever the hell it is. He's in Burma and I was in Sydenham. So get your head around that if you can. So yeah, sometimes it drops in, sometimes it drops out, but it's not disastrous. You will be able to cope with it, I think, I hope. But anyway, do check him, do check it out. His The website, the National Geographic website, Out of Eden, is out of this world. It's, it's astonishing, it's beautiful, it's meditative, it's everything you want right now. You know, to take your mind off everything that's happening around us. He's, he's a poet. He really, really genuinely is. He, he is a very, he will bring you, he will bring your your pulse rate down. He'll focus your mind. It really, it's a beautiful thing. What can I say? Anyway, I think I'm waxing, I'm waxing the wax off the waxing lyrical here. But um, how was, how was your week? I hope it was good because I've basically knocked Wednesday's podcast off because I was too, and I've broken. I just couldn't couldn't do it, I was too tired, it's absolutely, I'm, I'm exhausted, it's blah, working, interviewing, and uh, fathering, is in, it's quite a lot, isn't it, <laughs> thank God, you know, us dads, us mothers, us mothers, God, it's, it's this COVID thing, it's, it's so, it's hard to get your head around it, you know, I was like, just had my head down walking in the park today, just walking around, looking at the grass on the our local park, and it was long. Now, ordinarily, you wouldn't look at long grass and go, it's long, and get a bit depressed about it. But there should be cricket being played on that pitch. The grass is long. COVID. Fucking hell. You look at grass and you get depressed because it's long because of COVID. It's, it should be being cut. It should have... Cricket players on that pitch. God almighty. Look, I know it's been lifted, fine, but... You know, we can now play cricket, whatever. Oh, dear, God. I don't feel too weird about talking about this, because, frankly, I know you you know me, and I know... It's, it's a hard one. It's really... It's, it's, it's weird what we're going through, but I'm sure it will heal itself, and I'm sure we will be back to some form of normality in a... God knows, I don't know, year or so. Anyway... But yeah, enjoy this podcast. If you do feel like finding me on Instagram, please do. It's the Limehouse Podcast. Again, Twitter, it's at Limehouse Pod. Happy to chat with you. Reach out, whatever you want to do. And of course, please feel free to check out my short film on the website, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. Somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. And the short film there is it's going to take you out of yourself a little bit. It's a comedy, a black comedy with some beautiful scenery. Cinema, cinematography, oh my God, so beautiful. It really is the best. It's, it's wonderful. Enjoy this conversation. Paul is an absolute sweetheart. I thank him so much for his time. He's a very generous man. Out of Eden. Check it out. He's doing wonderful and profound things. That's what I think from my heart. It's what I believe. Look after yourself. Bye-bye.
because I know you grew up. Did you did you were you born or raised around Barstow or Barstow in in LA, Nevada? Yeah, I was I was born in 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 Barstow in Southern California. Yeah, um, which is kind of was on the periphery of of you know on the distant periphery of Los Angeles back back in the day. But today, I think it's actually kind of been subsumed. A kind of continuous track of development now. Barstow back then was kind of a just like a trucking town on old Route 66, the famous old, you know, transcontinental road made famous by song. Uh, it was also surrounded by um, military bases. And so my father worked on one of the military bases as a civilian uh, illustrator in like their graphics department, right? Um, painting signs, maps and painting and whatnot. Um, and I left I was born in 62. I left in 68 um, because my father was involved in politics. He was a, he was a World War II vet um, yeah. and uh, he came back from the war um, like a lot of guys of his generation, kind of a changed man. And yeah. um, he got involved in um, democratic politics. He became a campaigner for the Kennedys, a big Kennedy guy. Uh, and so, at least as it, as it was explained to me by my mom, because it was too early for me to remember, um, he basically decided to leave the United States um, after um, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated in 68. He decided yeah. that kind of the political turmoil, which has an echo today, of course, what's going on right now in America, uh, coupled with, with kind of deteriorating health, um, convinced him that he needed to kind of uh, change his life. So he quit his job, civil service job, and sold our house, sold all our possessions, and bought a used van, um, and just headed for the nearest border, which happened to be Mexico. And he, as far as I know, he knew nothing about Mexico. I mean, he probably, you know, talked to a few people, I imagine, before going, but um, I don't get the idea that this was a heavily researched decision. <laughs> <I think it laughs> kind of yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, when yeah. the shit's going down, you just got to get out, right? Yeah, he was disgusted uh, with the situation in the U.S. Um, yeah. he, he was heartbroken with the assassinations, um, and he just felt the U.S. was not the place that he wanted to be anymore, so he took us, um, it was, have, uh, there were five kids, um, one was already married, um, so he took his four kids who were still under his care and my, my mom and drove south into Mexico. And we ended up uh, through complicated erratic route um, in the central highlands in a state called Jalisco, outside of a big city called Guadalajara, which is kind of the second largest city in Mexico. Yeah, And we were in a community, a colonia, kind of... Uh, it used to be, it was still separated from the city proper by cornfields and open space. Uh, it since has been subsumed and is now like part of the larger metropolitan sprawl, but it was very much a, a rural upbringing because all of my neighbors, uh, Mexican kids I grew up with were farmers' sons. Um, and yeah. so I grew up in a kind of a agricultural community watching adults um, do agricultural sorts of things, uh, which back then still included plowing using animals you know using mules or whatnot uh, it was wow, pretty, yeah pre-industrial uh, um and went to mexican public school um and uh then later went on uh 
my father was a devout Catholic, so went on to, uh, he put us in a various Catholic schools. Uh-huh. And, and then he became ill. Um, his, his health finally broke and he, he was dying. So we moved him back to the States. And I was going on 13 at the time. And I moved back from Central Mexico to the U.S. Uh, into American public schools. Um, and that was a bit of a culture shock, reverse culture shock. Um, yeah. Speaking with a bit of a, a Mexican accent. I was very acculturated to Mexico as kids tend to tend to, to be, you know, when you go very young, you yeah. start speaking the language in six months. And, and uh, so it was very Mexicanized. Yeah. And then, uh, then uh, attended uh, a few years of school in the U.S. Um, and uh, basically started high school, secondary school, right? Um, didn't graduate. Um, I didn't fit in. So I didn't like it. So I quit. Yeah, no, um, I, can well, I can well imagine. Uh, when I was 15 and a half and, uh, I was, I was, um, I was a pretty good scholar, though a misfit. So I went from at 15 and a half, I, I went to college. Um, I went into with, in America, they call them community colleges. They're kind of two year trade schools or, yeah. um, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So that, uh, yeah, so, and yeah. started working, started working manual labor jobs too. And then, and so by the time I was 18, uh, I was also ready to leave the U.S., um, feeling that it really quite, wasn't quite home. Um, and so I, I started uh, working overseas. I went to Aussie um, and worked in Australia for over a year in a variety of, of odd jobs, all of the manual jobs. Yeah. And then worked in Hawaii for a while, again, manual work, um, and bounced around. And finally went back to uni uh, in California. I got into the University of California at Santa Barbara uh, studying environmental biology. Um, with a, it, it took me a while to decide on that. But basically, I liked being outside, being outdoors, and yeah. uh, I liked being in nature. Um, and so started studying that. I got a, a, a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Sciences. I was going to go on to get an advanced degree, um, but in the summers, I started working on, on fishing boats in Australia. Okay, yeah. So I became a commercial fisherman at 19. And part of the way I supported myself through college, university, was by going up to Alaska and working um, at industry as well. And so I was actually on the way to the Gulf Coast of Texas to try to find work on a shrimp boat. I was on a motorbike after graduating and fully intending to go back to grad school to become kind of like a rainforest biologist or something. Um, right. And the bike broke down halfway across as an old used bike. And I, I had to stop at a small town in New Mexico to do a series of odd jobs. And, and that's when I got into journalism. I took a job uh, at a small local newspaper uh, and I decided that was pretty interesting to work. And that's how I kind of ended up where I am now through so a, a really pinball, the, pinball trajectory. Right. The universe literally had to intervene, Paul. It, it, it literally had to say, okay, yeah, we're just going to, we're going to break your bike here because it, it, this, this, this shit's got to start soon. So get on with it. Here you go. Here's, here's journalism. <laughs> right. Very, very much serendipity. Yeah. Which yeah. still kind of is a very powerful force in, in, in what I do. Yeah. I, I believe that. I really do. Um, and so you start in journalism and, and I guess we can, we can assume that you, you fell in love with that. 
Yeah, I did, but it wasn't a it wasn't a regular it wasn't a marriage. It was more like an on off dating relationship at first. <laughs> okay, yeah. I worked in, in I worked in a, that small town newsroom for about seven months, I think. Uh, learning, uh, I was a cop reporter. I you know, you come in at the lowest rung. I don't know if you worked in a small newspaper before, but like the cop beat is always the entry level because it, it's it's crazy hours. You're up all night, you know. Yeah. Back then they they had a beeper connected to the police channel, and if somebody was murdered at three, you had to get up and go cover it. And so, oh um, it was interesting work. But I also didn't like being inside in an office, yeah. uh, so um, I quit. And, and went back to Mexico um, and I went with a photographer friend. We came up with this really cockeyed idea to go record, to go kind of do an anthropological project on this indigenous group in these mountains called the Sierra Madre Occidental, these Western mountain ranges in Mexico. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And spent a long time there. I mean, I spent more than six months, maybe close to nine. And I lived on a small ranch yeah. and, and never really, didn't come back into kind of uh, a journalism staff job for years. Um, I kind of freelanced around the American Southwest based in New Mexico, worked for a couple of regional newspapers as a, as a stringer or a freelancer covering not just the American Southwest, but also um, conflicts in Central America and, 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 and North, like in, in Central America, North New Mexico did, did stories. And then, so it's, but, it's mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just going to say, so it's fair to say that you're kind of um, skirt, skirting around the outskirts of, of this profession, understanding that it's it's part of, of something within you, but you're kind mm-hmm. of, you're not necessarily getting to the absolute center of what it is that you want to do, but you're using it as a vehicle all the same. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's, um, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody else as a career strategy, but... Um, <laughs> You know, talking about talking about chance. So, so in this town that I broke down in, just to step back, um, this place called Roswell, which has since become famous in the American media, is kind of the center. Uh, it's just culture. a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, back then it hadn't capitalized on that uh, reputation. It was still just kind of an economically depressed cow and, and petroleum town, small one, and I think it had like maybe fifty thousand population, forty maybe. I don't even know. But yeah. it was tiny and out in the middle of the, of the, of the grasslands of, of southeastern New Mexico. And I, when I arrived there, my bike broke down. I kind of tried to find – I had very little money. So I, I rented a, a room in a woman's house for $25 a week. So it's not a day, yeah. a week. <laughs> wow. And it turned out this, this woman – I noticed that I was, you know, picking up used paperbacks. I was working at donut shop at night. Uh, I was a, I was a um, working as a as a butcher's assistant during the day, pulling double shifts before I decided to kind of join the local newspaper. And she noticed that I was always reading these beat up paperbacks. They had like a, a used paperback store in this town. Yeah, yeah. And she had her her room. She was like in her late sixties. Um, and I want to protect her privacy. I don't want to name her, but, um, she, she had, uh, her room was filled with paperbacks, like just big piles of them. Yeah. And it turned out she had worked, um, when she was a young woman in New York. Um, she was the one who got me the job at the paper because she had, was the retired, uh, uh city editor. And she had worked yeah. in the fifties and sixties in New York for glossy magazines back in the heyday of magazines, yeah. you know, in New York. And she was former lover of Kurt Vonnegut. Um, oh, and so, whoa, no way. 
people you find um, on your various on travels through the world. And, and, and I think, you know, if I owe, if I can say that I can owe whatever the shambles of my career look like to one person, which is probably you can't do, but let's just do that thought experiment. It's probably to her because she, she encouraged me to read more. She would start passing me books. Um, she encouraged me to write. She encouraged my kind of baby step, first baby steps in journalism. She would read my articles and, and praise them. And so she, you know, it's, it's, um, it may or may not all go back to her. And yeah. she was extraordinarily poor. Um, she lived on a fixed income. She was, uh, she drank a lot. Um, and you, you, I could give you an idea of how poor she was that I came home one day uh, and there were some pliers and an empty whiskey bottle on the table. And she had pulled one of her own molars because she couldn't go to a dentist. Um, yeah. So um, anyway, I, I kind of, banged around freelancing and and then took a staff job at the at another newspaper the first one that i would after the roswell daily record in a nearby city called el paso it's a border town oh yeah, in yeah. Tech. and it turned out to be a magnificent job because um the, the border uh was like a uh, an extraordinary training ground for anybody who um was going to be a foreign correspondent because all of the kind of international issues health, international crime, you know, narcotics, um, migration, you name it, is like there. And so I was, without knowing it, um, kind of earning my chops as a foreign correspondent while living in this kind of big sprawling border city. Yeah. And, and I love the borders. It's just an extraordinary place. That border is probably the most extraordinary in the world, I would argue. Um, the superpower banging up against um, Latin America. Um, oh, I quite agree. Yeah. And so that was um, kind of my, my novitiate in foreign correspondence. And after yeah. quitting that job, I held that job for a while. I would take time off to go commercial fishing still in the North Atlantic. Uh, so I'd do journalism for a while, get tired of using my head, missed using my hands. I'd go work on a fishing boat uh, until I grew tired of just using my hands and not my head. And then I'd go back to a newsroom. And so yeah. through this kind of, ping pong effect, I ended up uh, taking a staff job eventually, um, years later at the Chicago Tribune, and they were crazy enough to hire me. Uh, and I became their Africa correspondent. And I've lived in Africa for nine years covering that yeah. continent. And during that time, also got sucked into uh, my time there coincided with the rise of the Bush Wars. So yeah. the war on terror. So I got sucked into covering Afghanistan and Iraq as well as the Balkans. So I did a lot of conflict reporting. And um, that lasted until about, well, until this project almost. So I eventually left, I left print journalism. Um, I, I felt like I needed it. It was collapsing anyway, but I felt like I'd done it a lot and I loved it, but I kind of was sort of doing the same things over and over. So I came up with this idea and that's how I ended up sort of where I am now. And, and small town called Putao in northern Burma. I started um, uh, in Burma. Yeah, in 2013, uh, set out from Ethiopia. Um, well, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that, that is, you know, that, I mean, the, the thing is, <laughs> between what, 98 and, and 2001, you, you, you won the Pulitzer Prize? 
you know, a Pulitzer Pro- for um, for reporting in in Africa, right? So it's like it's insane trying to fit <laughs> what you've achieved into an hour is is almost impossible. But I just wanted to give people a heads up to just say, hey, there is this thing that Paul did uh, that happened to win a, a certain amount of accolades, you know, and um, and praise. So, I'd, you know, if you've got a minute to talk about that or two maybe most people could talk about it for a you know would be happy to you know i don't know they could expand on it for hours and hours but i guess we've we've got this certain thing called um out of eden to talk about so yeah sure yeah pulitzer's i mean i've won two and the first one was for um a genetic kind of an expose of 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 this project going around the world taking DNA samples from indigenous groups or isolated populations to kind of build a kind of a global library of human variation. Yeah. And that's all well and good, but it was, it was proceeding without um, sort of the protocols that we're now familiar with today that, you know, if you take something from somebody, you have to have their permission. <laughs> and back yeah. then they weren't, they were gathering basically, you know, genetic property um, scientists were going and, and collecting indigenous groups DNA, their genetic property for use in research that maybe eventually could result in some pharmaceutical application, right? Which could make money. So, mm. you know, the, the fancy word for this, uh, you could call it biocolonialism. Um, and so I wrote about that. And, and, and then the second one was for conflicts and turmoil in Africa and mainly mm. my coverage of the Congo civil war. So yeah, those, you know, you don't, all I can say about those is that I'm, of course, honored and flattered, and they've given me kind of leverage in the industry to help do what I'm doing now, and so I'm really grateful for it. But, you know, I, I at least I, and I think I can probably speak for most colleagues who are, are um, kind of faithful to the vision of what we do, is don't go into the business um, to win prizes, right? So, I, you know, right. they both came as, the first one was a shock to me. Um, I think I... I think that piece came out when I was like riding a mule through Mexico. So that's how far removed it was my consciousness. Um, Then the second one, um, I was like covering the civil war in Sierra Leone. I was sitting with a couple British officers, a cavalry guy and infantry guy. And they were arguing the internal sort of romantic dispute about which is better cavalry or infantry when I heard about the second one. So, um, um, I think there's, it's great. You know, I think journalism is great in the sense that it's, um, it draws people, it tends to draw people who have a sense of mission um, Mm -hmm. in in the best possible way of trying to kind of add good to the world. Um, I think it's, it's coin has been severely devalued lately as it's come under attack. Um, Yes. Sometimes rightly, uh, but most often, most often not from authoritarian sort of quarters, right? Who yeah. Don't well, like it's it. become the norm. It's become the norm now. It's like, well, well, like you said, like from authoritarian quarters, it's just, it's almost come into, I don't like a, almost like this. Not, I wouldn't say like a subconscious thing where we're questioning the press, which is a great yeah. thing, obviously. Questioning the press, don't get me wrong, yeah, obviously, but yeah, it, in, but in in terms of a sort of a, a negative sense. Um, basically essentially uh, undermining the word fact and whether it's an important process in journalism anymore. Yeah, no, it's true. It's kind of even held in contempt, right? So exactly. Yeah. um, I think it's, 
it's one of the paradoxes of our connected age, which, you know, libraries have written about the effect of the internet on polarization and siloing. You know, here's this tool that gives the entire world, not just your county or your state or your country, but the, your, the entire world becomes your commons. You can get up on your soapbox. Mm -hmm. And I remember you know, the, the um, tech utopians, the, the digital utopians pronouncing, you know, a decade ago or so, how this is going to give everybody an equal voice. That's utter bullshit. I mean, it's, it's so open to manipulation yeah. Yeah. And, and false amplification and um, obfuscation and, and just it's it's it's, it's it's yeah, it's it's largely a sewer, right? Well, well so, absolutely. It's it's the low. It's a basis form of 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 human interaction, I suppose. And in, in some regards, yeah. I mean, it's I don't you know, I don't. I, I'm of two minds. You know, it depends on what do you ask me. I, there's no way that you can really. I don't know how you begin to um, ameliorate that problem. Hmm. I guess my project is is in part a stab one kind of small little stab at that and and basically it's not about the outcome it's more it's just the methodology yeah i quite agree I, you know if, if you here we're speaking on a medium in a medium that values speed i mean speed is almost everything on the internet and it always has been and that's been its great power i mean it's 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 amazing look what's happening in the streets of the u.s right now it's in real yeah. time or is that it's just happening right in not just you know 20 people but billions and the mm. power of that is extraordinary both to inform but also to mislead right it depends on which way yeah. it goes but what, what my methodology is the is the complete opposite it's like okay i get it i, I use that technology i value it. It's, it it's an exciting time to be alive because of it but i'm going to get off that you know centrifuge of, of spinning news cycles yeah. and just get out on and, and I think that by definition, if you slow down, just by mechanical definition, your your reporting becomes more accurate. You know, accurate in quote, because you can never be completely accurate, but it gets more accurate simply because it's more immersive. So yeah. if I were to go cover, say, I'm here in I'm here in a, in a like a big village of maybe, I don't know, fifteen thousand people in northern Burma. And if in my okay. in my usual way if i were like if i if my earlier incarnation 15 years ago had come to this site to do a story i would arrive at the airport hire a car hire a local you know interlocutor a journalist or somebody translator and spend three or four days doing x story or stories and then leave but the fact that i have to kind of go through this place and therefore it's mosaic of stories and micro stories at five kilometers an hour on foot yeah by definition means I have to be, I basically just absorb more information and my information, my understanding becomes more nuanced. So yeah. people, people say, Paul, how are you, you know, you're off, are you off kind of la la land little project, you know, walking around disconnected from what's happening. I argue absolutely the obvious. I am immersed in the current of debate, except my channel is much slower and in with intentionality. It's intentionally like a, a, a salmon, going upstream yeah um because i just feel like you know there's such a torrent it's like a fire hose of information being shot out um stimuli you know data factoids um pixels they're like i can open up one of those fire hydrants with a wrench and it just comes gushing out yeah. that why, why can't there be some channel 
that's more like a, a creek, the movement. Yeah. Where well, that, moving at foot foot speed, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's how that's what essentially um, out of Eden. That's how, at least the way I uh, take it, is is it's a, a very much required needed um, regression uh, to, to back to where we back to where we were and how we can learn from that and how we used to essentially what we used to um to i don't know better or not better ourselves but to expand you know and trying to um evolve that's the word evolve we've forgotten what evolution is like at the moment so that's that's fine but you know and that that requirement of evolution, we even then we would have been going at a hell of a pace to to yeah. to succeed, and we wouldn't have acknowledged that. But yeah. my God, you know, we're we're having to acknowledge it now. Uh, we've, we're we're going along such a lick. We're kind of destroying not only ourselves but our environment, and and then you've got yourself there and and out of Eden and and. <laughs> How did it come about? How how on earth was this like a slow accumulation of ideas in in your subconscious or something you'd always thought about doing, and or did someone come to you and just go, "Hey, Paul, you know this? Uh, I've got this idea here." Well, you know, like like most most things, it's, it's a combination of both. I think you know I've been doing this kind of reporting, which is kind of uh, I don't know what you call it, somatic reporting, using your body a lot. You know, mm-hmm. it's based in Africa. If you're gonna more than half the people in Africa are still rural based. It's one of the few places in the world, along with India, that, you know, the world's very urbanized now. So um, it's rare to find societies where like, you know, half the people still live in the countryside, but much of Africa is still that way. And so if you're going to cover a place where half the people live in the countryside, you have to spend time in the countryside. And if you're in Africa, starting in 2000 or so, when I started, it's changing now. Africa's really developing infrastructure, but back then, especially you had to get into those communities often on foot or, or, you know, by motorbike or, or some, some, you know, when I say motorbike, I mean like motorbike through a jungle trail moving at you right. know 10 kilometers an hour. So it, you had to slow yourself down in order to kind of get to the story. So I've been doing this kind of stuff my whole career, even back when I was reporting on the U S Mexico border, I spent, I had, the, I had the great good fortune of having editors who, who understood the value of immersion. And as long as the, the idea in the arena of ideas, which was a meritocracy, if it stood up to scrutiny, it said, okay, that's a good idea. I had great editors said, take the time to do it, right? Very lucky. It's yeah. harder and harder to get those kind of decisions made. And so I would spend weeks or months on a story um, you know, I, I lived with transvestite prostitutes bought in Mexico for like a month in, yeah. in their house, um, documenting their lives as intimately as I could, their emotional life. And, and it was the human rights story. They're kind of the ultimate outcasts, the untouchables. Yeah, absolutely. And I would you know, never be able to do that story justice by just popping in for, for even, even a day or two. So um, the, the walk has come from a background of a, of a, of a lifetime of this kind of kind of slow looking, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, but the idea or the key that turned it and said, you know what, let's take all of these strands of experience built up over years, not just in Africa, but in the Middle East and Central Asia and, in, you know, in Europe, um, let's take all of this life experience and, and kind of what, 
what I've learned from doing quote unquote slow journalism, even for an institutional newspaper, um, and, and make my own project out of it. How would I do that? How would I become kind of the ultimate foreign correspondent where both the methodology and the consuming of the work requires an attention span? And so I said, okay, why don't I just walk? And so because of my biology background, I remembered about human ancient human migrations and human origins. I, I had that template, that map in my mind, and that's where two and two came together and said, why don't you just walk along the pathways of the first human dispersal out of Africa, which is still mm -hmm. kind of a little murky. I mean, they, they, nobody really knows exactly how and when it happened, but basically between, I don't know, 60 and 100,000 years ago, groups of people started walking out of Africa yeah. well, regularly. We can, we can dial in Graham Hancock, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, so, so, um, that, so I basically took my science background and married it to my kind of journalism methodology. And that was how this idea came up. And I, I, was, I was working on a ranch in West Texas at the time, um, working at both writing uh, on a book and also working as a cowboy um, when this idea came up. And I thought, okay, if I had kind of the ultimate project what would, that was going to, that was going to occupy a big chunk of my life on, that wasn't just this kind of atomized approach as good as it, it is. I liked, I liked it when I was jumping around the world doing story after story. Is there a project that kind of knits it all together or braids it like a rope? And I came and I, okay, a journey, let's do a journey project because journey stories are kind of the oldest genre. I mean, we were, we've been telling each other journey stories around campfires since day one, you know, yeah. it's like, William, what did you see out hunting and gathering today? Well, I gathered these fruits. <laughs> I saw these antelope and they got away. So everybody comes back to the, the rock shelter around the hearth at the end of the day with a journey story, right? And then journey yeah. stories go on to permeate the symbolic world through you know spirituality and everything else. You take migrations, you take pilgrimages, you, you go on vision quests, you know, whatever, the, the hero, right? Robert Campbell and all that stuff. Right, so, absolutely, yeah. Um, so that's what... Um, kind of the idea had been simmering perhaps subconsciously, but, it, but it, um, it required in a strange way, it required crisis to kind of come into existence. So the crisis in the, in the media world, which was collapsing this old model led to the birth of this new, of this new idea. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I would have thought about it or come up with it had that not happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that, that when you were talking there about the, I want I wanted to ask you about the meditative uh, state of walking because although I haven't done much in my life in I, I think I've done maybe a, I don't know a normal amount I've I've walked to a, a beautiful stretch of um, national park we have in the south of the UK called the, the South Downs and um, it's it's about 109 miles and I've 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 attempted it five times and nearly every single time something cataclysmic and to, truly crap has happened along the way uh, to prevent me from doing it but I really have like experienced even in that small amount of of time a week of walking perhaps at a time a very mm -hmm. individual inner monologue of ups and downs, highs and lows, uh, mm -hmm. self-analysis. Anal uh, uh, an and I was wondering, 
and I also drifted into kind of almost like a semi-meditative state at, at times, good, good and good and bad. What is that like for you when you're starting out maybe in Ethiopia? How long was it before that state came to you? And I'm, I'm presuming that it did here. So, you know, go with me. But I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, sure. was it was it was it a did you find how long was it before you found that rhythm, both physically and mentally? Um, you know, it, I, 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 um, I think I'd have to kind of manufacture an exact timing on it because I don't really recall know what you're talking about in this state. Um, this kind of meditative state, this yeah. this trance this trance like state that you're talking about. It, it, I would, I would argue that it happens there. I mean, it probably it probably happened on the first day back in January 2013. It certainly happened on the last day that I was on the trail here. It, and it, and it, it can last a few nanoseconds or it can last the whole glorious day. And it's, yeah. um, you know, your own mood and, it, and sort of the landscape around you. But here's one, I would argue, here's one possibly significant difference from your experience in South Downs. And this is, I always walk with people. Um, you know, I've walked through one one state in the world uh, alone, and that was uh, um, Cyprus. But I've been with I've been with people the rest, like ninety nine percent of the rest of the time, because that's my modus as well. Is that I always walk with a local person, and so there is a, there is a kind of a it's a it's a it's like a day long walk, but also a day long conversation, and so it's it's kind of a learning journey as well because I'm I'm querying people about you know, culture, history, politics, economics, environment, you know, land features, folklore, uh, where's the best cup of chai up ahead from the banal, <laughs> from the banal to the sublime. So it, it's, I, I need to often disabuse readers who think I'm kind of on this Thoreauvian transcendentalist, you know, foot journey, you know, this landscape with kind of this, with music kind of swelling in the background (laughs) some some days some days it's like that but mostly it's not mostly it's like imagine if you had to leave your house right now step out if you could i don't know if you guys are still locked down (laughs) no we can yeah and like you walked out your door and you turned left and you just decided i'm gonna walk left for the rest of the day and i don't have a fucking clue where I'm going to end up. I don't know where I'm going to be at the end of the day. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. I don't know what the route is more or less other than I'm just headed left. And more than that, I'm going to find some local character who I'm going to walk with me this day. And then maybe the next day and maybe the next week and maybe the next month. And I would talk to them about everything that we're seeing. And then when we finally find a place at the end of the day, it could be a park bench. It could be a flop house it could be a truck stop it could be behind a gas station my day's not over my day just sort of begins at that point because that's when i sit down take out the notepad that i've been jotting on as i'm walking and i begin pouring it into a laptop either as part of a a book journal or part of an actual dispatch so this is a job and it's i would argue it's the best job in the world i'm the luckiest guy in the world because i can i can do this it's my my kind of workspace is the surface of the earth, yeah. And I get, to get up, I get. It's kind of like a, a childhood dream. A little girl, a little boy, you show them a map and you say, "Where do you want to go?" 
I yeah. face that decision every morning and it's one of the most wonderful decisions in the world. It's, it's just great. So there's this combination of what you're getting at, I think, which is this meditative trance-like state. It's absolutely, and it's, it's, it is a constant thread, surfaces and disappears and surfaces and disappears, sometimes surprisingly. Um, there's this euphoria that, you know, it, it strikes you at odd times. You know, it happens often in quiet landscapes, walking through Anatolia, where the, the land against kind of electric blue skies swells like, the long wave swells of the open sea and it's yeah. very easy to fall into that where you almost feel the earth spinning but also you can get this state in a busy busy crazy noisy indian city walking through it it's strange when it comes and when it comes it's always it's always welcomed and it, and it feeds into the work and i hope it improves the work yeah also, definitely. you know a journalist work just doing it on foot mm. Yeah, I mean, le learning. I guess what you're, what you're talking about there, learning to harness it as well, because I think sometimes we are very, and I'm talking mainly to the to the, I suppose, to people that, like myself, who are in, the center of uh, your your nine to five. It's it's hard to harness those moments and remember them and to keep them in a, an important part of your mind. Um, for future use because it is so important to be able to draw from those in in darker times but what what I what I think is really um I think the the travels that I've been on in my life I always find the importance of communication and and how I'd be really interested to know how you communicate with people whose first language is obviously not uh, English and how mm -hmm. how you've learned how to sort of I don't know, use gestures um, mm -hmm. and, and, and communicate through your appreciation of stuff. So like food or sunsets and stuff and, and how sometimes right. language isn't even required. Well, that latter point is really important. So, so language is the, for me, for what I do in my life, the ultimate filter, the ultimate kind of bottleneck. Um, but paradoxically, also the ultimate obstacle because um, you, you think you can get language and when in fact as you point out you miss a lot through language words can be masks they often are masks i would argue uh, as i get older i'm more and more increased increasingly come to the viewpoint that that almost all words are masks hiding something true or behind but the to to understanding in, in a in a human landscape in an occupied landscape which is now for better for worse it's most of the world we live in an age, the Anthropocene, where there's people everywhere. You know, I can count on the numbers on the fingers of one hand after walking, what is it now, a thousand miles, um, how many times I've been alone. It's, it's, it's pretty small. Yeah. Is, is you have and with nuance. And so that's one reason why I always walk with a local walking partner who, whose walking skills can be up or down. I'll slow down, I'll speed up to fit their speed, but they have yeah. to be able to, 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 to um, interpret yeah. as well as possible. And, 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 be, and it's, I've been an interpreter. I speak Spanish fluently from having grown up in Latin America. Si. It's si. Si, si, senor. Andale, si, senor. Si, Oh, um, okay. <laughs> but it's exhausting to do this. I mean, imagine if you're a professional interpreter, you do it for a couple hours and you're paid to do it. You know, that's great quality. But imagine doing it every day 
for week mm. after week. It's exhausting. A yeah. person like me who's constantly asking questions, right? So, yeah. um, so that's a real, that's, the, that's probably the biggest um, filter on my project. So what I've tried to do is learn languages along the way to conduct even rudimentary um, conversations, which is something I couldn't do when I was working as a, as a fast foreign correspondent, right? So yeah. I'm walking not just through landscapes, not just through cultures, but through languages. So if they're really big language groups, um, I, I have the time to, to learn them. So I was able to kind of polish up my Arabic walking through the Middle East. Not great, you know, maybe a, a vocabulary of like 200, 250 words, but enough to have a kind of a, a very rudimentary conversation on my own, which is like a breath of fresh air and not having to rely on somebody else. Yeah. And then when I was walking through Central Asia and the Caucasus, I was going through the former Soviet sphere. So I took, I took uh, Russian lessons in Georgia. I thought and, I, I thought I heard you speaking Russian uh, in one of your milestones, um, yeah, and I yeah, was like, sure. "Fuck, man, he's speaking Russian as well." <laughs> well, I've been walking through there, walking through Russian, the Russian landscape for two years, right? So that's enough time to pick some up. Two years, yeah, yeah. And God. so you know, that's not that's. I'm not saying that I can you know read Tolstoy, but I'm can conduct a basic conversation, you know, in a town to get some ice cream. Right. So, yeah. um, it, it, and that's the great things about this project as well. Um, so is, is, is slowing down enough to learn, you know, the language, the lingua franca. Yeah. Ling I mean, Mike, cause what I touched on there, are the milestones. So, I mean, first of all, the, the national geographic, the, um, website is astonishing genuinely. It's so easy to navigate. That's the first thing, obviously. Uh, the second thing is, it's beautiful like it really is and i've been i've been reading it slowly slowly for about sort of three to four weeks now and going through it and you you get i don't know whether it was your intention or whoever's to design it and i don't really want to go into the you know the website as such but just to give people an idea of how they can communicate with your journey it's it's beautiful like whoever set that up whether it's you or, or whatever and the stories the milestones so they are fantastic the i think you've what you've managed to do is accomplish precisely what i don't know what you're trying to achieve and which is such a rare thing because there's so much bullshit in this world and and outside influence where you feel in your in people's lives you feel you have to change who you are change what you're doing and i think what you you you've achieved on in telling this story in through a medium of, of a website is amazing it truly is and the the milestones was um could you can you elaborate on that because i know you have a, a various um you know you have your, your pictures the videos and and obviously your, your your poetry as well and then the and then the diarized accounts of each um sort of uh, 10 days as such there are different degrees of how deep right. you can get into your journey which is awesome but the milestones right. so do you reckon you could just expand on those a little bit Sure, and and I'll I'll let Patrick Williver, who who designed that site, know. Yeah, be delighted to hear your your compliments. Um, the, the, the you know the it's a journey story. It's a journey project. So maps play in to its to its they're essential to it, but also it's really a wonderful storytelling tool. I mean, maps are fantastic as as narrative devices. And I grew up I love maps as a kid, and so being able to bring them online and use kind of the oldest form of storytelling, the wandering bard, right? The West African griot. Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah. walks from the village singing songs 
but marry it to this high-tech GIS um, technology where I can geolocate not only my walking track, but even every story, every photograph is really, it, there's something quirky and, and there's some tension there. There's some friction between old and new that I like. And yeah, so, yeah, I quite agree. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think that's what um, I'm kind of sorry to interrupt, but I, I feel that I really do. I, the the yeah. conflict is, is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And so, yeah, the milestone idea came up saying, how, okay, so, I'll, you know, I'm a writer mostly. I take snapshots. I'm not a photographer. I take snapshots. I do audio recordings. I shoot video. But the real core of the project is, is, is the written word. And I'll, I'll write these, as you mentioned, these dispatches every week or two. But heartbeat. This is kind of a, a you know a bit of an unusual storyline on foot across the world for you know many 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 thousands of kilometers. Um, how do we keep a storyline that's kind of wouldn't it be cool to keep a storyline that's systematic? Like, is there one element that we can systematize narratively? And so we came up with this idea of of milestones of where every 100 miles of displacement no not miles walked on the trail but that means displacement is a, is a cartographic term a straight line like an airplane yeah take a take a gps recording at that site and record a certain set of factors you know you, you do a panorama shot of the landscape you take a picture of the sky you take a picture of the earth where your boots are um you take an audio recording you shoot some video one a one minute video vignette um and then you um talk to the nearest human being that you encounter and you have a set um, number of questions. You have three questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? And where you go? Because those are the questions that everybody asks me, right? So I get to ask them back. And there are questions about human identity, questions about human. Um, and everybody, you know, you can answer back saying, I come from God or no, I come from that blue house over there. You know, it's totally open-ended. It's in, and I recall what, what comes out of people's mouths. And so that's fun. It's kind of an anthropological sampling across the world of the human family. Um, yeah. And I take a picture of the person that I meet. And so there, there's this mosaic of, of faces um, changing across the surface of the earth. So that's great. They're fun. Um, and I think that uh, that what you're talking about kind of the, is, goes to the heart of the project. It's layered. It's not just um, like when I was when I was a foreign correspondent, I love being a foreign correspondent. I would do these really long stories about you know industrial fishing off the coast of africa i'd spend six months on it out with angolan fishermen and there would be this big multi-page take that i was very proud of and i still am but what this project allows it is like a map but you have these kind of um celluloid layers that you can put down or lift up so there's a layer for for milestones there's a layer for police stops there's a layer for dispatches um and uh increasingly I would like to say that we're passing the, the the quill and the notepad to the people I'm walking with. What I learned early on is the people I walk with have extraordinary stories themselves. So we'll yeah. be laying, laying on, it's taken us a while for the penny to drop, and I feel badly about that, but better late than never. We're having walking partners start to contribute their stories as well. So the layer of storytelling from all the people who've handed me from person to person like a human baton across the continents yeah, that's a great they idea. tell because you know william their story is going to be very different from mine their experience of seeing it's like the, the rashomon effect right the same thing and their stories are often livelier and more incisive and more interesting frankly than mine. <laughs> so what we end up with is not just one guy's kind of long soliloquy across several continents it's it's a medley of voices and that'll be a really nice legacy of the project. And that, I, me, I, let me just, 
let me add one addendum onto this yeah. is the notion of authorial perspective, real privilege, right? Because look, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white guy with an American passport and powerful institutions as partners, National Geographic, Harvard, the Pulitzer Center, other, other, other um, great partners in this caravan. So I'm very entitled, I'm very um, privileged as a walker, you know, you know, I, you know, I can get arrested and I have been arrested. I can be um, deported and I have been deported, but you know, up, it's all, you know, I think um, up to a point, right. It, it, it's, yeah. I think Graham Greene said, are you a member of the torchable class? And, oh, you know, Graham Greene. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so what I have to make clear is that one of the other advantages of passing the mic around as it were, that it also breaks down my walls of privilege to allow readers to see kind of a, a more local viewpoint. And, and, and in some senses, I mean, what is authentic? You know, every viewpoint's authentic, but some, some a more indigenous viewpoint that offers a, 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 almost a counter voice to what I'm seeing. And Absolutely. I think that's well, every journey is a conversation. It's either a conversation with your internal yourself, or if you're lucky enough to open up to others along the way and uh, and right. what brings you what brings you together i, I mean I, I had that experience not so long ago again on the south downs and i have spoken about it i guess people will be getting kind of tired of me talking about it but um i met a few really lovely people on along that walk and there's that one thing in common it's the unspoken thing that you, you have in common is the trail and it, and it mm-hmm. brings you together it's an i'm, I'm umbilical link and I always use that phrase because I, I fucking love it because there's this invisible mm-hmm. link that bring people together um, and, and it's whether or not it, we choose to acknowledge it and it can be seen as cheesy and overwrought with emotion to say it but unfortunately you have to acknowledge it and, and you have to because uh, life is too short not to pay attention to these things the, the things that glue us together yeah, you know, I, I hear what you say too about you know, being attacked for being naive or you know singing kumbaya across the right. world. Right, I get sure. it. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a former war correspondent. I've seen human beings do terrible things to each other, and yeah. and I have no illusions about that. And I also know have no illusions about how lucky I am to do what I'm doing, and how easily that luck can run out tomorrow. Right, yeah. I, I'm aware of all that. But you put your finger on something: the solidarity of the open road. Um, is a powerful element that I think goes back in our history to the very beginning. And I think people who don't, people who, who maybe deploy these criticisms are doing it out of a position of like not understanding or not knowing because they haven't attempted it themselves. Right. Is yeah. that if you're sedentary your whole life, you are missing out, I would argue, being the, the walking ideologue that I have become. Um, that you're missing out on the bulk experience because folks for, for more than 90% of our species history, we were rambling the surface of the earth. We were hunting and gathering. It's in our bones. It's not just in our bones, it's in our marrow. And it's also, I would argue, in our Pleistocene brain because we're still carrying the same brains around that we did 40 or 50,000 years ago when we walked out of Africa and just exploded across the earth. Our technology is going, you know, light years faster than our brains can catch up, and I think yeah. that's a lot of the neuroses in the world today. But yeah, if, I, I think, agree anymore. you know, I, I talk to kids a lot. I talk to students. We have an educational component as well, and I've got great partners 
a program called Out of Eden Learn at Harvard and at Pulitzer Center as well, where they get kids to encourage them to get out of the classroom and just walk their neighborhoods. And yeah. it's amazing. They come alive. They actually like they like scales fall from their eyes and they say, whoa, I didn't even know my own home. You know, I didn't know I could talk to this guy, you know, just getting out and rubbing elbows a little bit to, to have yeah. communication happen. You can't do it in a bloody car encased in this metal, you know, glass bubble where you're listening to music or something. Uh, yeah. You just, it's isolating. So the walk, you know, people say, well, isn't the walk lonely? Don't you get lonely? You're walking across. Are you, are you joking? This is the most social I've been in my entire life. <laughs> I cannot <laughs> be social. You know? In fact, I, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, when you're, when you're walking across the world, you're on stage, whether you're a migrant worker walking out of Calcutta or whether you're Paul walking across Burma, you're, you're, you're on display on the side of a road or on a trail or through a field. You're out in the open. People see you. You cannot not interact. If people wave at you, you cannot not wave back. If they say hello, you cannot not say hello. You yeah. cannot not conversation you better turn away you know offers for a chai under the tree um unless you really have to reach somewhere quickly by the end of that day so it's the most social experience of my life to the point that you know when i finally get to some cities after a few months i go and rent a room somewhere just to have <laughs> some <laughs> you know oh that's great have, you know, yeah. start batteries right because i'm always families you know or yeah. i'm sleeping somebody's field and somebody comes tapping, you know, on the head at two in the morning saying, hey, shining a light for you. So um, it's, it's intensely social. And I think what you tap, what you touched on is this kind of Manesque, you know, song of the open road at its yeah. best, at its best. It's that song. It runs you, you, you're connected to the whole of humanity that's on the move. Yeah. And, and I just hope that we, you know, this, what, what the coronavirus stuff has done is it has enforced that level of intimacy now you know whether it's with their immediate families and lockdown or digitally as we're talking now to kind of just stop moving so much right and just just tension for a while let's see we'll go back to their ordinary lives after this yeah. uh Did, let's see. can you sorry could you just repeat the last like 30 seconds the importance after coronavirus you just cracked up quite a bit there okay so i was just saying this coronavirus among many other things being mainly tragic it's also an interesting experience in 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 slowing down in 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 kind of getting ourselves to be intimate with each other in a way that we, we didn't have to be when we were buzzing around you know commuting yeah. to work or um where we be stationary and quiet with our family down or or through digital interactions right whatever the case is that we're, we're being asked through this this crisis to be patient and that's a commodity that's vanishing from the human experience um, yeah. and, to, and to have an attenuated attention span, one that's kind of more than a few seconds, right? Yeah. And so we have a social experiment going on here. And it's one, strangely, I think people in lockdown in, in London have a closer experience of what my walk is like than, than they would have like six months ago before coronavirus because they would be too busy to appreciate it. It comes with, it comes with good things and, 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 and problems, you know? I have bad days too, yeah. everybody. But the ability to, to slow your kind of um, psychic metabolism down enough where you know you'll be okay no matter what happens, you feel it gives you a, it's a source of strength and confidence that sort of 
no matter what the worst thing can happen to you, stuff gets stolen or you get detained or, you know, you get rained on or whatever, you'll be okay because, because you've been through it before and because you don't have this lifeline, which I would say is kind of a safety blanket of technology to pull you out of it. And yeah. so the coronavirus has kind of imposed that on people now. They don't have the distraction of going out and, and like going to a restaurant or, or going to the movies or, or, or whatever, going skiing or, or whatever. You, you have to, it's forced meditative pause on people. And it'll be interesting to see what happens once this lid comes off to see if it's made any kind of significant permanent change or not. Well, I think that's what we're all hoping for. I mean, I say we. I mean, I've got this that that profound sense of oh god, is it is it going to bring any change? And or, or the the I don't know that 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 question is it is this going to force any change? Will anything good come out of this? Uh, obviously, I was thinking about and talking maybe about nature and how nature has recovered just in the in space of three months. You know, bears being back in in moving back into sort of the picnic areas of Yosemite National Park, for example, or or what have you, and those wonderful things. Um, and whether we will allow ourselves to pause. And of course, yeah, I'm sure people like myself and and my friends, family would would categorically say yes fantastic let's let's pause and reflect and think more and more but obviously it's it's the multi-conglomerates right that the, these people they'll they'll only take lead from us um there are yeah. some that are just going to force their way to to to, to yeah. bringing us back to to where we were before uh, unfortunately yeah. but that's that's the way of the world but one one question i, I do did have just before because I know we've just passed the hour mark, so I'm really appreciative okay. of your time, man. So thanks so much. But because you're in Burma, I didn't know you were in Burma. Um, but I think I did. I, you know, getting confused. That's me. I get confused all the time. But Burma's a, a big. Um, I, I don't know what you. I don't know what you call it. Like a, a heart. It's in my. I, I got so interested in Burma when I was like 13, 14. My dad gave me a book to read called "The Heart Must Break" by James Maudsley, and it's about his. Um, his attempted suicide but then he he goes on this journey to Burma to try and understand the NLD Aung San Suu Kyi and and what have you and try and understand the plight of the Burmese people under the uh, junta out there um I mean there's a country that has gone through absolute unbelievable change in the last few years seeing the you know seeing the liberation of Aung San Suu Kyi and now the persecution of the um the muslims in that country what i mean what is what's it like to walk through these some of the countries i suppose and i'm mm. not talking about i'm not talking about in a macro sense oh my god all these terrible countries are war-torn mm. and oh my god because yeah. i don't believe in that bullshit anyway I, I don't i had a chat with a really great guy don't think about wars, uh, countries as in conflicts. Think about as people and break them down as, as individuals, and you, you know, etc. But what is it like to walk through those countries with those, knowing their history is so, especially Burma. You know, a few years ago, I, I don't even know you you would have been allowed to walk through Burma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably not. Um, yeah, I mean, you you answered your own question really well, actually. I, I wouldn't have much to <laughs> except to say, you know. You, yeah, you know, Afghanistan is not a is not a a, a war. It, it's 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 parts of a country, uh, and so the same goes for for Myanmar, for Burma, right? I've 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 been entirely in the north, and yeah. Burma, 
huge. I mean, it's it's well kilometers long from north to south, quite a bit long than that, I think. And is a kind of a, um, a minority area of, of kind of hill peoples uh, that have more kind of cultural ethnic association with South China and Tibet than they do with Southern Burma. So I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm from Burma and even, even my Burmese friends, my kind of, you know, ethnic Burmese friends, the majority, um, is kind of another Burma. So my experience here divorced from the kind of uh, tragedy and, uh, you know, that you're, that you've been describing that's been in the news, the Rakhine and the Rohingya. Um, that's kind of a lesson of, of humility, uh, that comes with moving, you know, at five kilometers an hour through the earth is that you can't really generalize. You can't really, we all have to be informed and we all try to be informed about kind of the larger stage that we're walking through. But my, my stage, my, my life, my world is, is visible horizon. That's it. And so uh, apart from this technology that I'm using to talk to you, that's my main concern. And I can tell you that, you know, up here, there's been absolutely no problem at all with kind of feeling repercussions of, of the terrible things that have happened, you know, hundreds of kilometers down to the south. Here, they have their own issues. Up here, there have been insurgencies going on since the 1960s, low-level um, rebellions, ethnic minorities fighting for autonomy or indeed independence. So that's a whole different story that doesn't get told at all, right? And that right, that's yeah. very... It's a very familiar phenomenon to me as, as a kind of a global writer because I covered the con- the cosmos of Africa. What is Africa? It's not even a continent. It's like a cosmos. Congo alone has more than 200 different ethnic groups. Yeah. And so how could you possibly generalize about the entire continent with 50 plus countries? It's just absurd. Um, and the same is um, you know, walking through like Turkey, for example. Turkey, if you mention it to the typical Western European, has connotations of tourism. It's a place you go for for beach and you know, you know, beautiful cuisine and whatnot. But I walked through yeah. parts of Anatolia that were a bloody war zone. I mean, I got a, I got ambushed twice in in Anatolia because of the war between the Kurds and Turks, the Turkish army. So um, you know, the thing about walking is that it allows that kind of those kind of nuanced distinctions really come to the fore because you're living them day to day. Okay, Paul. Well, man, I'd love to chat with you in the future, and and it's so amazing what you're doing. I absolutely adore it. It's no so wonderful. Yeah, no thank you for thank you for uh, inviting me. It's been a great talk, and uh, William, and you're doing great work. Cheers, Truly. Paul. Thank, thanks, mate. Right. Thanks so much. I'll speak to you okay. anon. You sounds good, man. Okay. Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Cheers, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye bye.